welcome to episode 124 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we say goodbye to four more drivers and teams from the Cup Series playoffs, offering our requiems and fixes to those no longer competing for a title, a group that includes three winners from the year and a former champion. That, plus our big Texas preview, where the winner could earn a one-in-four shot at a Cup Series title. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back. Since it is episode 124, we'll go with the driver with the last name Gordon, who drove the number 24 car. And of course, I'm talking about Cecil Gordon. (laughs) David, it is okay to acknowledge there may be some listeners saying who, but that's what we're here for. Cecil Gordon was a North Carolina native who drove the number 24 car from 1970 to 1983. In total, he started 449 races, never finding victory lane. David, what stands out about the other Gordon who drove the 24 car? Yeah, the number 24, common in Cecil's career because 24% of his Cup Series starts resulted in top 10 finishes. Hmm. And that's, uh-huh. that's you know, it's not an elite percentage, but I looked at uh, some some drivers. It's, it's a higher percentage than what Kyle Petty had, what Michael Waldrip had. It's a higher percentage than Eric Almarola and Austin Dillon. Uh, so no, not, you know, not championship level stuff, but he had some chops. Now, here's something interesting. None of his finishes, none in his career were on the lead lap. What? None of them. Yes. Wow. I, 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 I'm, I'm just as perplexed with you. That did not happen for him. But there, uh, there may be a reason. He was a career-long underdog. He owned his own team for the majority of his career. But he wasn't a rich man. He had to stretch his dollar as much as he could. Uh, there would be full seasons in which he utilized just one car. Think about that. For an entire year, one car would last the entire season. And this was in the high uh, mechanical failure, high crash damage era of NASCAR. He went from 1969 to 1971, and then from 1976 to 1980 without crash-related DNFs. Pretty impressive stuff nice. from Cecil. Yeah, yeah trying, just trying to make it. Uh, according to his crew chief, uh, Will Cronkite, longtime crew chief, Cecil was a good owner. He never missed a paycheck. He was always courteous and friendly, and he listened to ideas that did not originate from him. Uh, in tandem, they produced the first car, they believe, in NASCAR to utilize a rear sway bar. Uh, After that car debuted at Hickory Speedway, other teams took notice, and it quickly became popular. And uh, and after he retired, he still had a hand in the sport. He became the shop foreman for a little team called Richard Childress Racing during the Dale Earnhardt era. That's not a bad gig. Uh, And then from there, he moved on to Travis Carter's team. The old number 23 car with uh, Smoke and Joe as the sponsor, if you can uh, recall that car. Uh, He passed away uh, from cancer in 2012, but he had kind of a, a, he really wasn't expecting to be a uh, a Cup Series lifer. He was a short tracker, just trying to see 
what he could do. He called himself a weekend racer and ended up falling into the cup series and, and doing okay. I mean, just if, if we can just take away from his top 10 percentage, 24%, uh, as we have addressed, nothing to shake a stick at. Wow, I learned a lot about Cecil Gordon in the number 24 <laughs> car, but it did. It, it always stood out because th- that stat had always been there that no one had ever won in the 24 car, in the number 24, other than Jeff Gordon and then William Byron did it. But there was a long history, and most of it was Cecil Gordon, but he never got that win. David, oh, for 449. It just shows as long as you own the car, I mean, you'll always have, have a job as the driver, right? Yeah. But I mean, but again, I mean, just being able to do what he did, stretching his dollar as far as he possibly could and the manner in which he did it, there was uh, other things that impressed outside of the the goose egg in the wind column uh, to to make your uh, take your hat off uh, in appreciation of Cecil. Good stuff. Good start to episode 124 of Positive Regression, a hat tip to the little guy. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, Anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's get the episode started, David. It is yet time for another edition of Requiems and Fixes. We do this every year, every playoff round. Once elimination comes, we talk about the four drivers no longer competing for a Cup Series title. Kind of go over the year, what they did uh, well, and what they should fix for the next season. So uh, we have an interesting group here. Three drivers that won races this year, one former champion uh, that includes being Kevin Harvick. And uh, the one rule is, David, we can't just say, oh, you got to get faster. We're, we're going to dig a little deeper here. So we're going to let you start, though, on Kevin Harvick, because it's a big one, right? Kevin Harvick, winner of nine races last year, winner of zero races so far this year. And what he lacked in attention, uh, he made up for going out with a bang at the Roval, David. So tell us uh, his requiem and his fix for Kevin Harvick. Going out with a bang is quite the understatement. Um, I, I got to tell you, I let, uh, just to kind of peel back the curtain, I let Alan pick which two to do on these requiems. I feel like he knew what he was doing when he gave Kevin <laughs> Harvick to me. I think he did this on purpose. But as it pertains to Mr. Harvick, uh, what a year. What a conclusion. Uh, his fans are probably wondering what in the hell just happened. And frankly, so am I. Uh, this number four team, I, I mean, I got to tell you, Rodney Childers is a, a big deal and has done a lot and did a lot this year in certain spots when he could to supplement his driver. And to this team's credit, 
its 750 program appeared to be the central focus. And that's contrary to what they were trying to do last year. They were just trying to be good everywhere, even though that formula really isn't working right now for winning championships in NASCAR. I believe this was a team with its eyes on the championship. It just kind of went sideways, especially with the change to the inspection templates. But Kevin Harvick was simultaneously the best and worst part of this SHR number four team. His production ability cannot be argued. He gets results, uh, mostly taking advantage of spots that Childers places him in. But it's entirely possible he ends this season ranked in the top five in production and equal equipment rating. He's sensational. But among the drivers in the round of 12 during the playoffs, Harvick ranked as the least efficient passer. He had a pass differential 49 spots worse than his statistical expectation. And he was the restarter with the worst position retention rate across these last six races. Track position was elusive. And despite having an uptick in speed, they moved from 11th to third in median lap rankings uh, from the regular season to the playoffs. Wow. The the early exit was well-deserved. Uh, his exit for the second consecutive year came on a track uh, or a track type that confounds him. And even though he is clearly not a top tier road racer in this era of NASCAR, he's also not a lost cause. He's merely in the middle. And what that means is that he and his team, uh, they had a chance to be good enough on the Roval just to get through and advance into the round of eight. And that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because a 45-year-old veteran allowed his emotions to get the best of him. Uh, Sunday's race was not a misfire by the team. It was a meltdown from the driver. If you're a Harvick fan, I I don't really know what to tell you. You're you're probably disappointed. You, You should be. There are children competing in touch and go karts with more poise behind the wheel than what Harvick showed last Sunday, but SHR has got him for two more years uh, because of that contract extension that he signed early in 2020 that actually goes into effect next season. So there is a motivation to make this work as best as possible going forward. And Alan, the fix here is as best as they can do it they need to redirect their focus on something that Harvick can still do pretty well. And that is contend on short runs. I don't know what Hendrick Motorsports will produce in the next gen era, but they have a lot of money and they have two drivers and Kyle Larson and Chase Elliott, who are the best long run passers in the cup series right now. Joe Gibbs racing will have all the tools necessary for long run dominance. So let's not play that game if you're Stuart Haas racing. Harvick was a better restarter in terms of offense this year compared to last year. His average positional gain from the preferred groove was up uh, to uh, 0.67 positions per attempt. That's up from 0.03 last year. And his net loss from the non-preferred groove, which uh, was 1.16 positions last year, it's 1.03 right now. 
you can argue that it's harder to maintain leads a little bit, uh, a little bit more, but uh, he, he didn't have those leads this year. I would actually point to his ability to locate restart positions in the first full year of the choose rule. Over 55% of his restarts were from a preferred groove spot. So there was some intelligence utilized when he was choosing his restart spots. That's good, but it all needs to improve again, uh, especially his restarting on 750 tracks in the playoffs. The bones are there to do this. And I think there's an impetus. If we can assume that the new car, the the Gen 7, the next gen, whatever you want to call it, is more accident prone, then this might be Kevin Harvick's best pathway to race wins next season. And I think it will take a village. He needs short run cars if that is at all possible. And he needs to use that brain of his for a positive purpose. And I think he can still do it. He can be a short run sniper And that is something that can extend his career win total, which I know is important to him. Um, And at this point, I think that's all you can ask for. And speaking of those wins, I know we, we, you know, we pride ourselves on this podcast going a little deeper than just uh, surface numbers of wins uh, because there's more to production than, than just that number. But still, David, nine wins to zero wins. What's the biggest difference in that this year? Speed. Yeah, it, it, that, that's that's going to be the big one. I mean, even in terms of production, he's floating from third and fifth. He's still largely the same guy who did everything he did last year. What changed was the car speed, and some of that was neutralized by the parts freeze, by the change to the inspection templates, and some of that was made harder because the schedule changed. We talked about this before the season started the the heavy road course schedule really threw him for a loop and i'll give him credit he entered xfinity races for the express purpose of improving on road courses that didn't necessarily happen and it certainly didn't happen at the roval that's something he's going to have to look to improve but what we know can happen because the evidence is there the bones are there are the short runs i don't know if he's an all around dominator to that extent anymore. I don't know if Stuart Haas racing is going to have a next gen car. That's as competitive as the gen six. I don't know that the one thing that is in his control is an ability to choose his positions on restarts and execute to the best of his ability. Could there be room for growth? I don't know. We'll see. That might be the most realistic pathway to, any kind of positive regression. All right. Well, Kevin Harvick, Merry Holidays. We will see you next year. Next up on the list, William Byron. David, I'll take this one to start. William Byron, one victory, 10 top fives, 17 top tens so far. All of those career numbers for the third-year cup driver, which is exactly what I would hope out of a rising talent. Uh, Marked improvement. When it came to speed this year, consistency, and really just being a player, right on the on the grand stage, you know the, the the smell test, if you will. We're moving out of of Willie B being the kid, just happy to be there, right? We've seen William Byron, the man, ready to be a top five driver. We got glimpses of that this year, and he's done it all this year with first time Cup crew chief Rudy Fugel. That side has really impressed me as well. Uh, Fugel's ability to uh, join a team like Hendrick and thrive, getting that early victory in Homestead. Uh, David, I hope you and the listeners believe me and know I'm sincere when I tell you 
that I spoke to Rudy, but right before the Roval, I had his pit for PRN. And with zero bullshit in his voice, he had 100% confidence they would go out and win on Sunday. So much so, I changed my pick. I made William Byron my winning pick on PRN before the race. And would you believe he damn near did it? He led the most laps on Sunday. But it wasn't meant to be. So overall, I think they'll look back on this year as a great, necessary improvement. But just one that ended earlier than they would want to, obviously. Now... Everything I just said, that's the positive, right? We just saw how fast he was at the Roval, and he didn't win, ended up crashing. My fix for him, David, is simply taking advantage of his strengths, and that did not happen this year for the 24 car on road courses. Folks, William Byron had the fifth fastest car on road courses this year, yet he was 21st in scoring. He that's behind guys like Kevin Harvick and Austin Dillon, two guys who kind of crap on for their road course abilities, right? He was on the pole for two of the road course races and finished 33rd in both of them. You combine those what could have been's with the high crash frequency that he has, which is not good. And it it looks like it's just a kick to the groin when you look back on it, because everything that you'd want is right there for the taking and it was went to the wayside because they didn't take advantage of their strengths, especially on places like the road courses. I guess the, the opposite side of that is the good news is the fix seems easy, right? Just improve at what you're already good at and uh, maximize that, and they should have a good year next year. Uh, David, that is my requiem and fix for William Byron. So he's now been in the Cup Series for four years, right? And he's made the playoffs in three of them? Mm. Yes, apologize. <laughs> and he's still one of the three youngest drivers in the Cup Series. Wow. He's a special one. Uh, there is lots of blue sky above him. Making a dent in the Cup Series for all of these newcomers for the last few years, it's a slow burn. And in some way, that's happening for him too. He just has the two wins across these last four years, but... As you mentioned, the the ability to do something special is already there. He just has to put it together. He's in great shape, certainly relative to those of a similar age. And where he lacked, though, that does seem fixable, right? For years on the podcast, we've talked about like the speed uh, of the 24 uh, at road courses. And just to think back, leaving all those points on the table, those, I mean, you can stare at them right on the, on, on paper and say, those are the points you were missing to advance to the next round where maybe you should be. Yeah. And especially looking back at this past round, Talladega was not, uh, not good for, for him at all, but Las Vegas was one that was certainly correctable. It was bad strategy on top of uh, a bad pit stop and, uh, or a flat tire. And, and it just, it, it, it progressed from there. And the Roval, he had his chances. I mean, he had he had plenty and he drove to the front. He was he was sort of relentless in that regard. But as we previewed the Roval, we said one of the biggest things was not making mistakes. And here it was, one of the best performers in the field making mistakes or getting caught up in accidents started by others. And that's what's keeping him from from realizing all this potential that he's showing on a more regular basis. William Byron, we bid adieu and see you next year, but you're young and have lots of fun. We'll see you again next year. (laughs) David, next up on the list, another Hendrick driver, Alex Bowman. 
dug himself a, a hole in round two and didn't have anything like the Hendrick speed we saw out of the, his teammates at the Roval. He needed the win. He did not get it on Sunday, uh, last Sunday at the Roval. Uh, David, tell us about Alex Bowman and the 48 team. Well, you mentioned the speed, and that's a big problem. This was the slowest team per its median lap ranking of the 12 most recent playoff teams. And if you're not fast enough, uh, that's a problem. Uh, eventually, there's a threshold that you just don't pass. So there's stuff to be critical about here, but I'm actually going to take a different approach. This team overachieved this year. Hmm. Greg Ives with 65% retention on green flag pit cycles, 60% when pitting from the top five. He is one of the best, most effective strategists in NASCAR. Yes, I realize the Las Vegas race and the podcast episode that we did about it uh, (laughs) does not enhance his reputation, but I don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture here. Alex Bowman might not have been in that playoff situation in the first place if it weren't for Greg Ives. Uh, Bowman himself, he doesn't have the raw speed uh, like some of his fellow Hendrick drivers. I don't know that he has a high ceiling for potential. That said, though, his 30s are ahead of him. But he does appear to be smart and a well-schooled driver. He has become an efficient passer on most tracks, and he was able to make restarts work this season in key moments from non-preferred groove spots. And that kind of thing only happens when you know what you're choosing and you know exactly how you want to execute. He's one of the drivers working closely with Josh Wise, and he's been doing that for the last two or three years. You can track his progression as a driver, track that through line back to their initial pairing as the source for all of this improvement. And that's only going to continue. Still, though, we're talking about, uh, what, the 11th or 12th best restarter in the series, the 15th most efficient passer, and as I mentioned, speed just doomed him in these playoffs, uh, probably regardless of the Vegas pit strategy, if we're being honest. So knowing those numbers and understanding that they were eliminated in the round of 12, that was likely. That was the likely exit spot in this playoffs. And the fact that they won three times this season is probably a mark of overachievement. This rolls into my fix. If all of these individual pieces sustain. Uh, Ives is a good strategist. Uh, the pit crew, which I haven't talked about, uh, they'll probably end this season with one of the five fastest median box times. Bowman ranking between 10th and 15th in every statistical category. Those are all perfectly fine components. I don't think that those components guarantee three victories each season. The fix is maybe not even a fix. It's to trust the process because this is a team with a lot of green on the spreadsheet, very little red, and that is good, but that will be questioned if they go winless next season or go winless for a a long stretch. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility if that happens. If it happens and it's an air of perceived regression they should just continue trusting the process that got them to this very point right now, because eventually 
that will lead to good things and most often avoid the bad things. All right, good stuff. You just articulated everything uh, I kind of see with my eyes. And and what I mean by that, the 48 team, I, I never looked, even with the wins, David, I never, you never looked at the 48 team and thought, you know, title contender, right? No. Or, or top five sort of driver or team this year. As you mentioned, three wins, only leading 152 laps. I mean, that's not, that, that's far below what he led last year without all the victories. So uh, when you say overachieving, you know, all those pieces and all, all the research and what you just told us, it really kind of paint, you know, paints the picture and tells that story. But yeah, none of that, 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 that kill shot that I ever really thought about for the 48 team. And making it this far is something they should uh, be proud of. And I know there's high expectations as a Hendrick car, but uh, maybe they can they can build on it for next year, especially when you have a good signal caller and a good team and a, a lot of positives to build on. Yeah, the foundation's there. They don't mm-hmm. have a poor foundation. That is good because that means their floor isn't nearly as low as some of these other teams going into next year. I don't think they're a bad team at all. I don't know if there is a poor facet, but where they go from here, that's tough to see right now. I I think the important part is to maintain the foundation that allows them to even be in conversations like this. Because if we break these different components apart, uh, individually, I, I, I don't think Alex Bowman is as good outside of Hendrick Motorsports. Does Greg Ives make these kinds of calls with a better driver? Is he as this efficient? I, I don't know that he's, especially a riverboat gambler, he's he's pretty pragmatic. I don't know that he can get away with that with every team. So there's a lot of different pieces that when placed together makes them, uh, I don't know, g- greater as a whole uh, than the sum of its parts. All right, Alex Bowman, we will see you next year. Three wins, not bad at all. (laughs) Finally on the list, David, Christopher Bell and Joe Gibbs Racing. Christopher Bell's second year in the Cup Series, first with Joe Gibbs Racing and new crew chief Adam Stevens. One win, six top fives, and 13 top tens. Uh, David, I mean, the second round wasn't awful for him. He had an eighth and a fifth, but the 24th place finish in Vegas helped do him in. And that's kind of a microcosm of his season, right? He thrived at 750 horsepower tracks, won the Daytona road course, close second at New Hampshire, uh, road America, Richmond, top three finishes, a top 10 driver when it came to peer performance and equal equipment rating at 750 tracks. That's good. And so when I look at the fix, I, I look at the other side of the coin, David, because on the 550 tracks, a negative peer the second worst driver in the series on 550 tracks when it comes to Pierre, second to only Eric Almarola. For all the good they had at 750 horsepower tracks, it was evened out, maybe even unbalanced, by the lack of production on the 550 tracks. So for me, the fix is easy, David. You have to find that balance. You have to be a better all-around performer if you're going to advance up this ladder because eventually you're going to fall prey to your weakness at, at these big tracks. And uh, to make it this far, you know, kudos to Christopher Bell, but there are improvements to be made. What do you think? Hmm. That, that's pretty good. You know, it, it was, it was a strong year for Adam Stevens. Uh, for the most part, he dealt with this up and down Christopher Bell uh, sophomore driver. And there's something about the sophomore year 
in the cup series. That's a come down for a lot of drivers. And that's probably actually a really good subject for a deep dive, uh, for me down the road, but it was Bell's sophomore year. And, uh, and yeah, Stevens rose to meet the challenge. He was among the top strategists this season, 64% retention rate, 60% when pitting from inside the top five and 22 total green flag pit cycles consisting of gains of two or more spots. And that's the third most of any crew chief. And they did all that with a shaky pit crew uh, to be kind. So I think that the team did a fine job to establish uh, this new number 20 entry around Christopher Bell and sort of forge it into his identity a little bit. But now you're right. It's on Bell to take another competitive leap and turn a, a weakness that was once a strength back into a strength. So uh, that that this third year, uh, second in total with JGR is uh, is going to be important. All right. And, and again, yeah, a young driver. Uh, well, I mean, you know, age is relative and we can have a whole conversation on that because he is older than a few of these other uh, good accomplished prospects already. But just as, you know, second full year in the Cup Series, I think the progression is there and positive, correct? I mean, I, I don't want to crap on it too much being his only second year and first with a large team. I, I think that was, uh, we saw a lot of positives for Christopher Bell. No, he's super talented. And, and I mean, it's it's clear that this is uh, why this is the driver Joe Gibbs Racing and Toyota are so infatuated with. I just didn't anticipate that that would come to the surface on road courses and and some of these 750 tracks. Maybe I should have, but it, it sort of speaks to Bell's uh, desire to improve a piece of his racing repertoire that was previously pretty spotty. I mean, we talked to Michael Self about this earlier this year. Bell is in the mindset of wanting to improve. Now uh, a big hurdle comes in trying to make himself a more whole race car driver. And looking at JGR's other three drivers, that's the kind of driver that best takes advantage of everything that JGR is doing. We see a very different JGR organizationally this year compared to last year. And I would argue that those, uh, the, the, the three other drivers, Hamlin, Truex and Bush are malleable for this. Well, Bell has to become that in order to tap into what Joe Gibbs racing does best. All right, Christopher Bell, good year, but we bid you adieu to the playoffs. We will see you next year. Those are our requiems and fixes after round two of the Cup Series playoff. All right, David, we move on. We're moving on to the weekend where the Cup Series moves to Texas to begin the round of eight. And as we head to Texas, remember, they weren't there earlier this year for a full race. They were there for the all-star race. And, of course, the big talk when we go to Texas uh, can be the tire and the low tire fall off. Because some of these mile-and-a-half tracks, David, we love to talk about Homestead and Atlanta. And the drivers say, oh, the, the tire wear is great. That's, that's great for racing. We love it. These are our favorite types of tracks. Texas, we don't see that. Uh, with the PJ1, I was talking to some of our engineer friends in the garage. The PJ1 caused a little fire, uh, a little fall off, but there will be no PJ1 this weekend. So let's talk about Texas and its low tire wear, because while it may not produce the best racing product in the eyes of some, it does lead to potential strategy, and it leaves it wide open in terms of the strategies and what you can do as a crew chief. 
So, David, you want to celebrate that a little bit. What do you think about <laughs> Texas, despite its low tire wear and what it can offer us? I think it makes you use a different part of your brain. Uh, <laughs> if you don't appreciate the 550 package, I, okay, I'm, I'm not sure that I blame you. There's there's certainly less craft when there's a horsepower reduction. Uh, being wide open in the gas should be a gutsy choice, not a given, I guess. But what this package and the tire compounds that it's been paired with on some of these mile and a half tracks, especially Texas, the fall off is minimal. It fosters creativity in decision-making, and it allows for different options. Sunday's final stage will require two stops, maybe three, and in those will come some flexibility. And that flexibility is with fuel. Uh, And of course, there's risk associated with that, but tires, especially under yellow, and with the timing of the stops themselves, because a long pit attempt that comes up empty on a track with minimal tire wear, that isn't nearly the death blow it would be if tire wear was massive. And when we think back to, uh, you mentioned Homestead in Atlanta, but the most recent Atlanta race, the racing on the track was pretty good, I thought. But the strategy that crew chiefs had to employ was restricted. There were no gambles or calculated risks because there was no room. The tire wear did not allow for that. So while I don't think I'm going to sell anyone on a a race using this rules package, uh, this race is going to be tough to watch at times this Sunday. I think it it can be a race decided by a good thinker and a good strategy. And that is interesting. The fact that I'm really not sure what a winning strategy will look like just yet is is what will keep me tuned into this race. And that is the unknown element. And that's something that we can get excited about. For for the eight playoff teams, uh, you came up with a good question. What's more important, a good points day or a serious shot at the win? Uh, I'll tackle this first only because for me to answer this, for me, it, it kind of depends on when Kyle Larson wins in this round. Uh, stay with me here because if he wins, well, start big picture, right? In theory, in Phoenix, there are three winners and one driver in on points, right? In theory, we didn't see it last year, but in theory. So if Kyle Larson wins, it feels like that one points position is up for grabs because right now he has such a big lead in the standings that if somehow he weren't able to win one of the next three races, that one points position up for grabs for Phoenix would go to Kyle Larson. So if Kyle Larson does get a win, it seems like that points position is up for grabs. So to me, I still believe the best way to get there is compete for the win and have that be your best shot at getting to Phoenix. Because if Kyle Larson is the one who needs to get in on points, he's going to get in on points and anyone else is competing for that one spot. Not going to get it. I agree with you. And, and you alluded to what happened last year, but correct me if I'm wrong. There has never been a repeat winner in this round since the inception of the playoff format. And that would mean making it to the championship four on points really is an option to just one team more than likely. Uh, So in, you know, you're right in theory, it's easier to be good for one day than it is for three days. At least four teams that do not win are not transferring their eligibility to the championship race. So 
yeah, I think if you have a winning car or driver, then it's go time. And I don't see a compelling enough reason to hold back in the name of padding points. Track position is going to be tough. Uh, It'll be tough to get at least in these first two races. And I'm not particularly high on Martinsville for that either. Because if you remember how long it took Martin Truex to actually pass Denny Hamlin for the lead last spring, yeah, that, that's that's a lot of time. And not all of these drivers are going to have time to, to make those passes. So go get the track position now and try to get a win. That is what is within a team's control. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, if you're planning for most realistic scenarios, it's that Kyle Larson is going to do pretty good, if not win. And if he doesn't win, if you're a team that, that even gets, what, three top fives or three top sixes, that's a lot of points, but you're probably still going to be behind Kyle Larson and not advance. You know what I mean? Without getting a victory. So three top sixes, heck, three second place finishes may not be good enough uh, if you're chasing points, if Kyle Larson isn't one of the three winners. So uh, you're in a big hole when a guy like Kyle Larson has such a big lead going in uh, to this round of eight. So yeah, the, do all you can go for the win, punt on stage points if you have to what have you. So that's the front of the field talking about who may do well and what to plan for. Let's look at the other side, David. Um, As we start this round, is there any driver you're particularly worried about as we look at the next three weeks? I have no expectations whatsoever for Joey Logano. Mm. And uh, that that team is so weird to me. Uh, Paul Wolf's teams did this with Brad Keselowski. They every now and again slip into this place of competitive irrelevance. And hmm. it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they don't have much to offer. And that's a bad spot to be in uh, come championship time. Logano on 550 tracks, the 22 team is relatively slow. They rank 14th overall. And they are the slowest of the remaining eight playoff teams. Mm-hmm. It's the second fastest team on 750 tracks. And there's just one of those in this round, and it's at Martinsville. And specifically, it's not – this isn't the best Penske team at Martinsville, much less a team that I would eyeball for the outright race win. They ranked ninth in median lap time at that track in the spring race, and that's not going to hack it if they replicate that. So we certainly need to see something that we haven't seen from them before – they have any chance of getting to Phoenix, which ironically they could have won at in the spring. Uh, Logano had a four and a half second lead and ultimately lost out to Martin Truex uh, in a uh, a non preferred groove restart spot from the front row. Uh, you could argue that Phoenix is their best playoff track, but if they don't get there, it might not matter. And I'm right there with you in terms of uh, who I, just looking at the numbers who I'd be most worried about only because uh, of his history and in terms of expectation. We've seen Joey Logano win Martinsville and put himself uh, to Phoenix or Homestead at the time and win the championship. We saw him win what Kansas last year, put himself in the final four and have a shot at Phoenix. If he can get out there and do it, clearly he is capable. He's Joey freaking Logano. But the speed right now, he has to be in position, right, to take advantage and be out front of a Kevin Harvick and say to be able to block him for for so many laps and use his talents for good and all that stuff. But uh, as you said, the the numbers, what they're showing me at these 550 tracks, and he's up against two of them right in this round, uh, it's not putting him in the most advantageous position. 
No, no. And and that's going to be that's going to be tough. There's going to be something that's going to surprise us. And, and I don't know, it, it might be him, but mm. if we're looking at this season as a totality and understanding that there was very little room for teams to improve given the uh the rules special to this season, that is that's really tough to see. Uh so of of the eight competitors, I think they have their hands quite full. All right. Uh let's make our win picks. David, I I mean I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to be boring. Kyle Larson. <laughs> I got to do it. I got to pick Kyle Larson. Uh he's got the wins at at these mile and a half 550 tracks. He's clearly got the speed. Won the All-Star race, good performance at Texas earlier. Plenty of drivers to make cases for, I'm sure. You know, Kyle Bush you could throw out there, but I'm going the boring route. I'm picking Kyle freaking Larson because uh I think he'll win. Why not? I'll be less boring. Uh, Denny Hamlin is my pick. Uh, okay. Third fastest team on 550 tracks this season. Las Vegas was the only 550 track on which he had the fastest car. And I think this is a role that continues in large part to Chris Gabehart's ability as a strategist. He's another 60 and 60 guy when it comes to uh, retention one of just a few and the only one with playoff eligibility. His decision-making came in handy at Darlington, for sure. Unless we forget, Hamlin won at Texas in 2019. That day, Gabe Hart supplied him 13 positions on his final three green flag pit cycles. That was a huge factor in them winning that race. And that kind of thinking, that kind of decision-making is going to be crucial this weekend. All right, uh, so you pick Denny Hamlin, I pick Kyle Larson, uh, which is shaping up to be a pretty damn good battle in 2021, so I'm looking forward to that. Maybe we'll see who the winner is uh, in Texas, but let's go with our contrarian picks, either someone that might sneak the victory or uh, maybe punch above uh, his weight class. David, I'll let you go first. Who's your contrarian pick? Tyler Reddick is the pick. Uh, Top 12 speed on 550 tracks. No stage points whatsoever to race for. If he doesn't hit the wall or if there are just a few restarts, he can probably win this thing. Uh, In fact, for these next two weeks, I think that's a realistic goal for him. But everything has to go perfect. No driver error, no misplaced strategy. None of that. I I do think the recipe is there for uh, a pretty incredible finish, though. All right, good stuff. You went far more contrarian than I did because uh, I'm sorry, I'll pick William Byron. <laughs> William Byron's no longer a playoff driver, so it uh, seems pretty contrarian to me. But no, he's got the second best speed to his teammate, Kyle Larson. Uh, good passing numbers at the 550 tracks this year. So a lot to like, as we've said. Uh, plenty to prove You know that he is uh, still quite capable of winning, but out of the playoffs. But he could be my contrarian pick because uh, he's no longer a playoff driver. So I, I feel comfortable in picking young William Byron. I don't have to say anything because your Twitter mentions will do it for me. Yes, they do every week. It's it's, it's almost a uh, comical at this point. So um, myself and Byron, we're rolling together in the contrarian section. So good stuff, Dave. Another good episode. Episode 124 of Positive Regression. Don't forget we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. 
If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff helps spread the word about this podcast. We absolutely notice it is very appreciated because it helps other people uh, start listening to us. And that, that really does help. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. I was happy to see you in the media center at Charlotte Motor Speedway, uh, plugging away, talking with people, typing away. What do you got this weekend? This week for NBC Sports, I'm writing on Kyle Larson and specifically the idea of whether he has another metaphorical gear to pull. Have we seen the best of him already this season, or can he actually improve, uh, namely at Martinsville and Phoenix, in his quest for the Cup Series championship? I'll also have a preview of Texas that will post uh, morning of the race. So please check those out at NASCAR.NBCSports.com. Good stuff. And if you're listening on Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. After you listen, make sure you go check out my Twitter feed at Alan Kavana and watch this week's edition of Quick Hits. It's a video I do for Speed Sport, just kind of setting the table for your weekend of racing, even beyond NASCAR, dirt, and HRA, all that stuff. Uh, it'll be, it's always a fun weekend of racing. And I learn a lot by doing it. There's uh, so much fun, uh, fun competition out there, all racing of all forms. So that's the Quick Hits from Speed Sport. Make sure you check on Fridays on NASCAR.com Fantasy Live. Myself and Amy Long try to help you with your fantasy team because I know you guys are running out of starts and allocations for your big drivers, especially those Kyle Larson starts. So we'll try to uh, give you some great advice to help your fantasy team. And just make sure you keep up with my social channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff uh, should be another fun weekend of racing. So thank you for listening. Positive regression for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.